You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 15th of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. Russia takes its war with the West to space, Japan and the UK enter recession, and beauty matters for politicians in Germany. I'm Chris Chermak. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Chris Chermak. My guests, Carol Walker and Alessio Patalano, will discuss the day's big stories. We'll have a weekly letter from this week from Tunis. And we'll be checking in with the Daily's usual host. I'm Andrew Muller. I'll be joining the show from the Munich Security Conference, where I'll be bringing you our early impressions of what this year's gathering is going to be about and discussing some of the interviews we've already done. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily and I'm Chris Chermak. I'm joined today by Alessio Patalano, professor at King's College London and an expert on Asian defence, and by Carol Walker, political commentator and Times radio presenter. Hello to you both. Good evening. Good evening indeed. Alessio, you have been on the road to countless numbers of places from the sounds of it in Asia. Uh, yes. Um, well, you know, uh, the last six months, the things have sort of uh, gone back to normality. And that includes also with the removal of China, uh, COVID-0 policy meant their travel is back on track. And, and as it often happens, um, after a certain period of absence of, of events, then the agenda quickly gets sort of crowded. Um, and so and that was the case. And, and it's been fascinating to see the appetite for engagement across the board with all the sort of values, issues, not just in East Asia, from you know tension across the Straits of Taiwan, Second Thomas Shoal in South China Sea, uh, but also how what was happening in Europe, both in Ukraine, and then you have the Red Sea, how this was affecting their security architecture as well. So it's been a really interesting sort of period to be out there and engaged again, as used to be the case. Absolutely. Well, we'll touch on some of those issues, but Carol, you have been as far as Norfolk. You were telling me earlier for this year, but that said, you were also going to be going to Washington for. Super Tuesday or to the US. Uh, yeah, I've had um, the odd escape to Norfolk, which I do as much as I possibly can. <laughs> but apart from that, I've spent a lot of time at Westminster, where I think a lot of the political focus has been on the Middle East, of course, and what is happening there, uh, not just the Israel-Gaza war, but also, as Alessio mentioned, uh, in particular, the attacks on shipping in the Red Sea and the knock-on effects that that is happening. But yes, I am planning to um, go over to Washington for Super Tuesday, where we're likely to have confirmation that it's going to be um, Biden versus Trump Mark II. And I'm sure we'll be talking a lot more about that during the programme. Well, there is so much that we could talk about in terms of issues and crises around the world. But we will start today actually in Washington, D.C., in a sense, because if Russia is to be believed, a ploy is underway there to convince Congress to pass a bill to fund the war in Ukraine. This at least was Russia's response to revelations that U.S. intelligence officials believe Russia is considering deploying its nuclear capabilities in space. Uh, Alessio, this is quite an extraordinary story today, frankly. Basically, Russia is 
believed to be developing technology to deploy nuclear weapons in space to knock out any and all satellites of the US and their allies. What did you make of this? I think it's going to be interesting to see how it develops because, of course, maneuverability in space is not exactly the same as as as, as we see it in the skies. So uh, um, the question um, we've seen uh, back uh, in 2007 or 2008, if I remember correctly, um, we remember where the Chinese did a test uh, whereby they used one of the uh, rockets to hone in into an old satellite to knock it down. So, so it is possible. Uh, at the same time, it's because you shoot it from planet Earth down up, not from the space to another point in space. Um, there we're entering a slightly different context in which physics matter in a different way. So at the moment, I think we know too little to actually make, a, 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 if you want, a sensible assessment of what exactly that is supposed to mean. Having said so, I think there's a, a corollary to this uh, because uh, news from the United States came out at the same time you have the Norwegian Security Services providing the annual uh, briefing and update on intelligence. You've got also other countries in the Baltic and Eastern Europe uh, publishing their own assessments of where Russia is. And one of the perhaps less, uh, if you want, uh, slightly less fancy sort of observations to make is that there seems to be a, a consensus emerging uh, from those who are observing Russia the front line, that the Russian military machine has now fully geared into wartime mobilization and their production rates are absolutely staggering insofar as the what we've seen so far in Ukraine going on. So as a general proposition, I think it's important that US uh, uh, military and, 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 and security services are pointing to the challenge that Russia presents. But the space stuff, I think, should come as a second important but still second type of focus as opposed to what we know about what the Russian military is doing. Well, Carol, I think what's interesting there in a way is is this fact that perhaps even even though there are additional warnings from intelligence services about what's happening on the ground, the Russian military machine, as Alessi was alluding to there, we have had its focus on the ground, on the wars in the ground, the many conflicts, frankly, around the world, but of course the war in Ukraine. Is it, it feels almost like we forgot about space as a frontier. Yeah, I mean, there are so many questions, aren't there, about this story. It emerged uh, in Congress last night, uh, rumours that there'd been some kind of briefing about an unprecedented global threat. And then we learned that it was some kind of intelligence suggesting that President Putin was planning weapons in space. But first of all, it's not quite clear whether we're talking about nuclear-powered weapons or nuclear armed weapons, weapons, which would be a huge difference. I mean, if you're actually going to fire a nuclear weapon Mm. in space, that could potentially knock out satellites over a huge area, bring down debris, who knows where. Would even President Putin actually want to risk all of that? We don't quite know the, the level of the intelligence, how detailed it is, Whether this was just President Putin saying to one of his henchmen, look, I'd love to get some super weapon that I can fire into space and that'll rattle the Americans. Um, Or whether these are actually fully developed plans. And I don't think we've seen anything that really answers any of those questions. And then I think you also have to wonder whether maybe there's some misinformation or disinformation going on here. The Russians have denied it, but then obviously they're not going to confirm it. They tend to deny many things. They tend 
to deny things that are completely true and also put out bits of information that are completely untrue. Mm. So I, I think that we have to just approach all of this with a good degree of caution, whilst obviously being aware that mm. President Putin, as Alessio has been saying, um, is a very dangerous dictator. Uh, and you only have to look at what's happening and continuing to happen in Ukraine and the continuing threats to states uh, closer to that border um, to know that you can never dismiss these mm. things altogether. Mm. Well, absolutely. And Alessio, this this warning about the new frontier of space, mm. as you say, comes on the on the heels of these other intelligence warnings mm. about the Russian ground operation, which also come on the heel of a whole bunch of other warnings. It feels like we've been getting mm. over the last few weeks. You know, there was talk of mobilization here in the UK, mm. a war with Russia in the next five to eight years. Mm. All of these warnings, this backdrop that we're getting, this sort of drumbeat of warnings. What do you make of all of that? Do you is it is it? It, it just feels like it's getting more dire by the week. Uh, to an extent, yes, of course. But but but, but let me um, since it wasn't bleak enough, let's add the real next <laughs> frontier in all of this, which is um, seabed and undersea. Uh, uh, warfare. That is the next frontier. I'm always a sort of, uh, um, you know, I, I giggle when people sort of associate naturally, as we all do, the next frontier of space. But in reality, the next frontier, really, we should look down and deep down into mm. the depths of seabed and undersea warfare, because a lot of the prosperity upon which modern society live upon and thrive, digital connectivity, physical connectivity through pipelines, it's on that space. And we know that authoritarian regimes thrive in trying to take advantage of our dependencies and our potential vulnerabilities. So, uh, you know, the Red Sea, in that sense, is a small window into a world of worries that we should be sort of focusing on. And and that speaks to the second bit of your question, um, you know, is the world getting bleaker and bleaker? To an extent, what is happening, I think, is is the convergence of two factors. One is state-on-state -state contestation um, is back in a way that we haven't seen for the majority of my adult life, if I'm honest with you. Um, and we're not really accustomed with that too much anymore. And that means that states do have resources, if they so wish, to bring that contestation in all sorts of dimension and spaces. They can do it directly through competition with weapons and new frontiers or spaces, as it were, but it can do it indirectly. Mm -hmm. And we learned that with the Houthis and the bankrolling of non-state organizations that now get access to capabilities that previously would have been in their wildest dreams. That complicates the picture. And what you're seeing is our reaction to a world that is changing at an accelerated pace. It's bringing a sense of discomfort, insecurity and vulnerability much closer to home. And we're still sort of grasping at and trying to organize how do I order all of this so that I can start sort of dealing with it. I think there is a combination of these two factors, state and state and the implications that it brings about and the impact that is dawning upon us and bringing very close to home in different guises and, and now sort of facing a situation, hang on, how do we deal with all of that? Carol, the one other backdrop to this, whether we believe Russia or not, is that Congress is still wrangling over a funding package for Ukraine. The UK's Foreign Secretary, David Cameron, kind of joined in these warnings, if you will, by suggesting a US failure to approve the funding would essentially be like appeasing Hitler in the 1930s all over again. Is that sort of rhetoric helpful? 
Well, it's interesting. There was quite a flurry when Lord Cameron, former British Prime Minister, who's now been brought back as Foreign Secretary, delivered that warning to specifically Republicans in the House of Representatives who are threatening to block this big package of international aid. It's a total of around $95 billion, some $60 billion or so to be targeted towards Ukraine. Um, the UK is very, very concerned that uh, this package, which Ukraine has made very clear it desperately needs, has been held up for months. Um, it's finally got through the Senate. And I think this was part of an effort to try to get the deal approved before we get into the heat of the presidential race and before we hit a potential Trump presidency mark too. And he's made no secret of um, his views that the United States should not be sending as much money um, towards towards Ukraine. The UK has been one of the biggest backers uh, after the United States of Ukraine in its fight against Russia. Um, David Cameron uh, made it clear that he was setting aside diplomatic niceties to say, look, you are risking making the same mistakes that were made in the 1930s uh, when we were facing the threat from Hitler. And usually that is seen as a rather desperate step to take. But it has been interesting, the number of figures that have come out and said, well, look, actually, there are realistic parallels here. Um, President Putin does have those kinds of ambitions of taking on uh, extra territory. Of course, uh, he's um, talking about uh, reclaiming um, bits of Ukraine that themselves are being taken over by the Nazis. So that rhetoric has been employed on both sides. I think the problem is whether it's going to work. Uh, US Republicans, um, are they going to enjoy being lectured to by a British foreign secretary? Um, Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a a pretty right-wing Republican, has already uh, said in no (laughs) uncertain terms that uh, David Cameron can kiss her. Yeah. So whether it's going to work, I I think, is uncertain. But I think David Cameron has shown that somebody with the additional clout of being a former prime minister can go out there, can speak his mind, and then at least he'll be able to say, look, we warned you, we warned you, we need to help Ukraine to withstand Russia. Well, let's move on from the brewing threat in space to the more immediate conflict in Gaza, where Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has continued to defy international pressure and an invasion of the southern Gazan city of Rafah is believed to be imminent. Rafah shelters some 1.4 million Gazans at this point, almost three quarters of Gaza's entire population, but it also holds the last vestiges of Hamas, which Israel has vowed to eliminate. Carol, what have you made of Israel's motives, its defiance here in sort of finishing what they started? Well, I think Benjamin Netanyahu uh, knows that the only way he can survive is by really continuing and coming as close as he possibly can to that war aim of destroying Hamas. Now, 
many people, and I, I will be interested to hear Alessio's views on this as an expert in warfare, will say you can't destroy a terrorist organisation, however many of them you kill, um, that there will be others ready to replace them. And of course, there's a big argument that what Israel has been doing in Gaza is breeding a whole new generation of extremists. Um, but I think what is interesting has been the growing international pressure on Netanyahu from its traditional allies, um, from the United States in particular and the UK, saying increasingly uh, strongly and more directly, look, you cannot launch a ground invasion into a city like Rafa, where you've got almost a million and a half refugees, which is tiny, which is crowded, where people are already struggling to survive Uh, They are desperately short of humanitarian supplies. I was talking to somebody from um, the Medical Aid for Palestine organisation who has teams out there and their own teams are just struggling day by day to get enough to, to survive. And I think that there is so much concern about the potential loss of life if the Israelis did go in there. Um, But Benjamin Netanyahu is part of this coalition government that includes some pretty hardline right-wing extremists. He's facing huge domestic pressure. Even some of those Israelis that initially supported him have been absolutely uh, appalled by the way he has prosecuted this war, um, the loss of over 28,000 lives. Uh, And essentially, he's also got this corruption trial hanging over him. If he is deemed to fail in this mission, then he's finished. And I think that is why he's prepared to increasingly defy international pressure and continue to prosecute this war um, at really appalling civilian cost. Well, Alessio, you are a professor of war and strategy, albeit in in East Asia. I mean, there, there are two aspects to this. One, as Carol mentioned, is whether you can defeat a terrorist organization like Hamas The other one is, do we imagine there is any way to carry out a military action like this without an untold number of civilians being killed in the process? No, you can't. To be honest, um, and that's that's what Carol uh, was alluding to in a way, and she's absolutely right. There, there's no way to get about this. So, so that, let's let's step back for a second. And there's three points to make here. One, and I think it's a UK point, and you know, for months I've been thinking about. Uh, David Cameron coming back, you know, former prime minister. Uh, many were pointing to the fact that he's got sort of like a direct on the numbers from when he was a prime minister. It turns out that's not really his key asset. His key asset, he says, as a former prime minister, he's got the gravitas to have a, a certain leeway to go off script, say things that others would not be in a position to say with the same comfort. And the way he's been talking about um, the Ukraine package, the way he's been talking about Israel and wanted to put pressure, even pushing for a two-state solution. So in that sense, it's turning out that in the, this particular point in time, we might have the right type of foreign secretary that you want to have in place to have that sort of, at least verbally, to shake things up in a way that many others cannot do, particularly because you have to be walking, and that's the second point, a very subtle line between the supporting Israel, which is in a very difficult position for an additional reason um, that, that should be mentioned. There are still hostages taken, right? And, and there is a correlation between military operation and the continued sort of conduct of military operation and the release of hostages. You want to have an international pressure that is strong enough to 
diplomatically reach the stage where you'll have that because that is by far the most powerful ammunition that we could have to put pressure on Israel to uh, relinquish, if you want, the military pressure that is taking place. Why? And that's the third point. Because there's no way to, besides the fact that, you know, from a military perspective, what's the end state? It's unclear, you know, all right. So short of turning Gaza into a massive rabble, which is happening, what exactly is the end state here, right? Is the eradication and destruction of Hamas. Okay, what does that exactly mean? Does that mean the tunnels underneath Gaza and therefore the military infrastructure? In which case, really, there is not much other thing other than sort of literally, you know, raising the whole thing to the ground uh, because so deeply are the infrastructure and the tunnel structure. But then, hang on a second, there's people living, right? It's not just all a mass. So how do you square that way? There is no possible way to square that way. So and, and if it is eliminating or eradicating the terrorist group organization sort of element, uh, sorry, 28,000 of confirmed casualties right, left and center. Don't you think that is going to breathe an entire new generation of people that are going to deeply hate you, plus all the loss of international face and support that you're facing? So when you're breaking down into exploring how you would define a theory of victory in that concept eradicating Hamas, right? Whether it is in terms of Hamas as a, as a, as a, as a military organization, as, a, as, a, as an infrastructural project in, in Gaza, or indeed as a future challenge to Israel, none of this will be addressed by any military operation in Rafah. But at the same time, for the reasons that Carol elucidated, we can't sort of put sufficient amount of pressure on Netanyahu because at the moment it looks like he's growing comfortable in being detested internationally for what he's doing. The only thing we have, I think, is to push on the diplomatic forms to increase the number of release of hostages to put the situation such that the domestic justification of the destruction of Hamas changes in nature and might lead to a different place where we are now. Carol, just quickly on this... um to finish, I mean, here in the UK, there have also been reports today a lot about a rise in anti-Semitism. There has have been, frankly, a rise in hate across the board, if you will. I, this is all so extremely emotional for people, what is happening there. I just wonder, do you feel, is there a way to kind of have the political conversation without all of the hate that has come with it? Well, it seems as though with what is happening in the Middle East now, it, it is very difficult to to have that. Um, I, I just wanted to add one point to what Alessio was saying, which is the other thing for Lord Cameron is that he hasn't got a, a parliamentary seat to fight. He hasn't got to worry Bravo. about yes. his voters yes. back at home. He can true, be true. free to travel the world and focus on these global issues, which is part of the reason why Rishi Sunak brought him back so that uh, Rishi as Prime Minister can focus on his uh, many domestic uh, problems. But I I think it is noticeable how here in the UK and in other countries too, um, there has been this this real rise in ethnic tensions. We've had these figures out today that uh, show uh, a fourfold mm. increase in anti-Semitic incidents last year, and the vast majority of them came after the October the seventh Hamas attacks on Israel. I think what is noticeable is that uh, this uptick began in a really marked way 
immediately after those attacks. So it was before mm. Israel launched its onslaught on Gaza. It's not something that was necessarily provoked by that military action and the loss of Palestinian lives in Gaza, which makes you wonder whether there is this latent anti-Semitism. The opposition Labour Party has had a huge row going on Mm. all week after two of its candidates were uh, recorded uh, making what in one case at least appear to be blatantly anti-Semitic comments. And I think what is noticeable is if I hear from, um, I have a, a just grown up daughter and she was talking about the divisions amongst her friends, yes. a big falling out in the band she was performing with before they went on stage. And it is extraordinary the way so many people here in the UK um, appear to have taken sides in this instead of looking at this appalling conflict, thinking, well, Israel suffered a terrible a brutal attack on October the 7th. But what is happening to the Palestinian people, in particular the civilians in Gaza, is also um, a, a really, really shocking uh, development. It is interesting. This is not happening just in the UK. We've seen it elsewhere. There are figures out in France showing it happening there. And it also seems to be accompanied by, at least in part, an increase in support for some of those far-right parties that are absolutely feeding on these ethnic tensions, which is, I think, a really worrying development. Well, if this show has not been bleak enough for our listeners already, we are now going to turn to the world's crashing global economies. Both Japan and the UK are now officially in recession. Japan has Japan is now the world's fourth largest economy as a result. That's just behind Germany, which moves up one spot despite its economy minister this week describing the German economy as dramatically bad. This is, of course, extremely helpful for the leaders of said governments, all of whom have extremely low approval ratings and could face the public in elections later this year. Alessio, you have just been to Japan. Do people feel the economic news that we're hearing today over there? It's an excellent question. Um, I think it depends how you look at it. In in a sense that uh, in Japan there has been some sort of disenchantment with with the uh, government initiatives for about a decade now, uh, because there was a lot of excitement when later Prime Minister Abe came back in 2012. If you remember the three arrows to read turbocharge the uh, economy in a sort of like Boris Johnson's type of vocabulary. And that didn't really happen. Uh, But inflation was kept abate and therefore even a very slow economic growth meant that the economy was doing fine. Um, However, the amount of reforms that you have to bring about um, in Japan in light of a very fast decrease in population, which keeps the government shackled to the idea that it needs to have a very large budget in order to look after um, health care and provisions for the elderly and childcare for the young, etc., etc. Uh, Japan is, finds itself in this very odd situation that in addition to all the other malaise that, that usually post-modern societies in, in, in advanced economies have, has the additional incredible pressure of having um, a fast declining population and really strict immigration policies. So the combination of these two factors, in a way, people sort of like saw it coming, right? So people will tell you quite quickly, yes, things are fine, but... Um, 
it's all feeling very slow. And now the euphoria brought about by the uh, 2020 Olympics, which usually bring about an economic boost, but in Japan took place obviously in 2021 during COVID, so that limited enormously the opportunity, has left the government relatively unmasked. Now, on top of that, I think the mood in Japan was really slightly bleak because you have to understand that uh, they're sitting next to Russia, which has not gone entirely quiet in their neck of the woods. Uh, they are sitting in front of North Korea, which really is not being quiet all along. <laughs> and they're sitting next to China, which is the fastest growing military on the planet. So if you combine that with the general economic performance, I'd say the, the, the mood is, was already quite gloomy. Um, and it wasn't really a ball out of the sky coming to them. But surely, I think there was a sense of like, yeah, this is coming and we haven't done enough and the government's not doing enough. Hence why the prime minister has such low approval rates, because he's an economist. He's actually quite a, a techno-economic nerdy kind of person. He loves talks economic, but that hasn't seemed to have brought the type of change and re-engineering of the economy that the expectation sort of existed in, in the public domain. Carol, what is your sense of what's happening here? Is is it the same kind of structural issues that Alessio was talking about? How does Rishi Sunak see it in that sense? Is there anything that he can do? How are people feeling? Um, I'll answer the last bit first, which is to say that I think people really have been feeling it in their pockets. People mm. are really struggling. There are many of the same structural issues which Alessio has described in Japan, uh, you add to that um, the brief Liz Truss premiership, which was an absolute disaster and sent interest rates absolutely soaring. Um, we've had very high inflation here in the UK. Now, one of Rishi Sunak's few achievements, although many people will say that it, it happened r despite his economic policies <laughs> rather than dis uh, because of them, uh, is that inflation is back down now uh, to 4% from highs of around 11 but that is still well above 2%. Mm. And people have been really struggling. They've seen um, their prices in their shops soaring, uh, energy prices uh, soaring. Um, the interest rates mean that the mortgages on their houses um, have also gone up. Many people over the course of the last year and a half or so uh, will have come off their fixed rate mortgages and are sudden, suddenly having to pay hundreds of pounds more per month. And you add to that the fact that wages have not kept up with inflation, which is why we've also had a whole wave of industrial action. So I think people are really feeling it. And uh, Rishi Sunak was saying only yesterday, well, look, we've turned the corner because, phew, inflation stayed at 4%. It didn't go any higher. Um, but <laughs> that, me that, of course, means people's prices are still going up, just not as much as they had been. Mm. Um, and uh, then we've got these figures showing that the UK is in what many people are saying is a technical recession because it's two quarters <laughs> when the economy shrunk. Um, it, it is an economy which is shrinking. And Rishi Sunak was only able to say last year, oh, the economy is actually growing because over the course of 2023, the economy, GDP grew mm. by 0.1%. So that is not exactly Just a situation <laughs> in which either people 
All businesses um, feel that the economy has turned the corner and it's going to be a really, um, there's going to be a very important budget coming up in a couple of weeks' time. The Chancellor's under a lot of pressure to announce tax cuts so everyone feels better off. Um, But he has got to find the money for that from somewhere and many economists are saying he really hasn't got much room for manoeuvre. Well, let's move on to our final item because it turns out that one solution to politicians' problems just might be plastic surgery. That's because the Munich-based normally serious IFO Institute has done a survey all about the attractiveness of German politicians. Basically, they asked Americans to rate German MPs on a scale of 1 to 10 and then compared those ratings with their television appearances. The upshot will not really surprise anyone. Attractive politicians got 50% more time on talk shows and appeared 35% less in Parliament to do their actual jobs. Alessio, I suggested this topic this morning, and yet I still don't really know what to make sen- how to make sense of this. Do research groups really just have too much time on their hands? Uh, <laughs> that could be one reason. The, the other thing, I, I, as an academic, I question the methodology. Why didn't they ask Italians, who obviously have much more style <laughs> and better judgment in that, in that department, so rather than asking to Americans? So, so from an academic perspective, my trouble is, is way upstream, as it were. Um, but no, I, you know, it, it's interesting because I think it, 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 I think. The, the bigger question behind this is what is the role of strategic communications and, and public-facing, public engagement in modern politics? Um, you know, and, and we only have to sort of reach back to, to programs like In the Thick of It or Yes, Prime Minister to get a sense of the fact that how you engage externally, how you communicate matters, if not as much, but it matters enormously more than in the past when you do politics. And so I think perhaps there is the more serious note to that is... People need the reassuring face somehow. So even if it's not attractive, but if it is, let me put it this way, it is a punch in the face of someone who likes at least the basic color canvas matching to see some politicians going on television like, where did you get that tie from? Right. <laughs> so so, so and it distracts you from actually listening to what they're saying. So there, I think there is an element there to keep in the back of our mind that we live in a time and age where through our daily life, we're constantly exposed to concepts of what's right, what's wrong, what's beautiful, what's not beautiful. We need to engage with that. And I think politics has been struggling in trying to engage with that, partly because if you look too right, then people might not take it seriously. And what I didn't get from the the research there is what actually are they saying? Are they saying that it's true or are they saying that we need to more constructively invest into avoiding that becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy? Carol, what did you make, <laughs> make, make of those findings in that sense as a, as a last word on this? I mean, is it the fault of the politicians or the television studios that book them? Uh, well, uh, I'm not an academic, but I also wondered how they judged the beauty. I mean, did they have exactly. some sort of American-style <laughs> beauty contest? Um, it's no... <laughs> Huge surprise that the beautiful, attractive people got to be invited onto media outlets more often than those who are who are not. Uh, German politics isn't quite as unstable as uh, UK politics, but I hmm. think there's certainly a trend here in the UK where you've got a whole load of politicians who are looking at the fact that they're about to lose their seats <laughs> and are kind of gearing up by um, as plenty of media appearances as looking as the, at that as an alternative career once they leave um, politics. Um, Look, do do we need beautiful people in politics? 
don't most people actually want somebody who's going to sort out some of the other problems like get the economy working, make sure they've got a job and they can afford to pay their bills? Um, but uh, look, voters are superficial. Um, perhaps they, they will vote more for a more beautiful politician, but um, maybe they're less likely to get one because they'll be off on their alternative career on the media. Mm. <laughs> Carol Walker and Alessio. Patalano, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to the Monaco Daily. Now, if you have been wondering why I, Chris Chermak, have been hosting The Daily yesterday and today, it is because Monaco's contributing editor, Andrew Muller, is at the Munich Security Conference this week, hobnobbing with world leaders and security professionals from around the world. Andrew joins me now on the line from Munich. Andrew, it is the day before the big shebang really gets underway. What have you been up to today, aside from getting your colourful entry badges? Uh, We do have our colourful entry badges. Once again, we cannot help but notice that they have gone with the yellow lanyard on press badges, which I assume is somebody's idea of a sly dig. It's quite a good gag when you think about it, yellow press and so on. Um, We have been doing a few preparatory interviews before the circus properly kicks off tomorrow. We did at one point today have in our little suite that we have here two former presidents of Estonia at once. So we, we, we are off and rolling. We've spoken to a few people and we have a great many more to go. Did you do a panel discussion with two former Estonian presidents? <laughs> uh, no, we did not do a panel discussion with them, regrettably, although I would tune in for that. No, um, President Ilves was leaving just as President Kalyulaid was arriving, but there, there was a bit of chat as one came and the other one went. Very nice. Well, we'll look out for all of those interviews. But this conference does come at a strange time, doesn't it, with all the talk of Trump this week? What is the mood over there heading into it? Where Trump is concerned of a certain amount of bewilderment, I mean, I I don't credit Trump with the strategic nous to have done it deliberately that he looked at his calendar and saw Munich was coming up. But he has obviously managed to make himself very much the talk of the town uh, for the rest of this week. Uh, I'm referring, of course, to that outburst uh, earlier this week, bizarre even by his standards, in which he boldly said that he would encourage Russia uh, to waltz into any NATO member state that was derelict as Trump saw it in paying its way and, quote, do whatever the hell they want. And at the risk of a spoiler of the interview we did with President Ilves, um, he did point out that we already have a very clear idea of whatever the hell Russia wants means, uh, because we have seen it in Ukraine. And for a potential and former president of the United States to make such an utterance is, is just absolutely bizarre. So what it has, I think, helpfully focused people on is the idea that Europe does have to understand that it cannot rely on the United States uh, as confidently and perhaps as complacently as it has done for most of the post-war period. Uh, Europe does need to start thinking very, very seriously about how it can look after itself. So that's one way that this conference has been shaped. This is not your first 
Munich Security Conference rodeo, as it were, Andrew. I wonder <laughs> if there are any other differences for you. There are a few people who have backed out ahead of this, also interesting ones like Lindsey Graham from the U.S. Uh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me untowardly. I think Lindsey Graham would find himself struggling to find people to have dinner with if he turned up at this one. This is, of course, uh, following his extremely peculiar apparent about-face vis-a-vis uh, assisting Ukraine. Obviously, though, we haven't quite touched on it with anybody we've spoken to yet, but one thing that is different from last year's Munich Security Conference is that there is another major war, uh, the one in the Middle East, to be contemplated as well. And we will be contemplating that with a few of our guests coming up because the conflict, as everybody here understands, the conflict between Israel and Palestine uh, sucks in a disproportionate amount of heat and light at the best of times. Uh, and this is very much not the best of times. And that conflict, as any of our listeners will understand, has had domestic political ramifications in countries all over the world. So yeah, I'm pretty sure that's going to come up as well. Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. A strange time to have the conference with two wars, uh, major wars to talk about. Just finally, before we let you go, uh, you are hosting your own cocktail reception this evening together Together with our editorial director, Tyler Brule, are you excited for the Foreign Desk to be the centre of attention? Uh, I'm always excited for the Foreign Desk to be the centre of attention, Chris. No, th- th- this will be fun. Uh, this is the first time we have attempted such a Beano while attending any of the security and diplomatic conferences that we've been going to these last couple of years. I'm pretty confident we have a, a decent roll-up of distinguished attendees planning to drop in. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite excited to see how it goes, although I can't enjoy it too much because I am wincingly aware as I glance at our schedule that we start tomorrow morning at eight o'clock in the morning with the Prime Minister of Kosovo. So I'll need to be fairly restrained, I think, in my revelry. Well, Andrew, I do have to ask you one final monocle question I've been ordered to ask. What are you wearing tonight? (laughs) I'm extremely respectably dressed. I'm wearing a very nice suit. In fact, it is the same one that staff may call from the Christmas party. And (laughs) if people want to infer from that that it's actually the only wearable suit that I own, they're welcome to go ahead and do so. Andrew Muller, go and enjoy your restrained cocktail reception tonight. Thank you very much for joining us and be sure to check back to our news shows for plenty more in the coming days from the Munich Security Conference. And finally, on today's show, it is time for our regular weekly letters installment. This week's letter is from Tunis. Here is Aaron Brown, North Africa editor at New Lines magazine. A week or so ago, I got the absurd idea in my mind that I wanted to bake a cake. It's blood orange season, and I had a vision of a simple chocolate olive oil number shocked through with their sweet tart zing to cut the richness. Maybe even a few thin poached slices on top, sticky and pink. The idea was absurd not because the cake itself was overly ambitious. It's a mix your wets, mix your dries, combine them together and whack it in the oven kind of cake, nothing fancy. But because in Tunisia, where I live, we haven't been able to find flour, butter, milk or sugar on store shelves consistently for more than a year. You see, most of those basic staple goods are subsidized by the government. Over the course of the last several years, Tunisia's economy has gone from bad to worse, and the government hasn't had the cash to cough up for the flour or sugar it buys for its people. And for a nation that's the world's highest consumer of wheat per capita, 
Tunisians are the kings of couscous, the baronesses of the baguette, the princes of pasta. That has been a problem. That doesn't mean you can't find bread or cakes anywhere in Tunisia. Most grocery stores and restaurants have bread available, largely because they receive priority for what little the government does have. Or they're cutting deals to buy wheat on the private or black markets. For the rest of us chumps dreaming of a home-baked cake once in a while, the options are slim. And I knew that if I wanted to realize my tea time fantasy, I'd need no small amount of ingenuity to get my ingredients. I'm no stranger to a culinary challenge. I've lived abroad for almost a third of my life, and in locales as far-flung as Almaty and Irkutsk, Moscow, Paris, and now Tunis, I've hunted down rare foodstuffs, usually to bring my holiday nostalgia to life. I'm happy to trek across town to find cornmeal for a proper cornbread stuffing, or hand-raise an anemic pot of sage on a Moscow windowsill so that Christmas will taste just right. Two years ago, I drove an hour out of town here in Tunis to cut a deal with a shady Maltese pork butcher for what he promised was a kilo of cranberries just before Thanksgiving. After the handoff, I realized I'd bought a kilo of frozen red currants, but I doctored them with a little bit of pomegranate juice and quince, and while the Americans at my table knew the difference, I don't think anyone minded. And likewise, when I'm back home in New York in between foreign postings, I'll happily schlep to some tiny bodega in Brighton Beach to find just the right brand of buckwheat grechka or journey deep into Queens for real, punchy, Kashmiri chili that warms you from the inside out. But my cake conundrum wasn't just about going the distance. It was, instead, a matter of persistence and perception. Staple goods will crop up from time to time in the local grocery stores, but in extremely limited quantities. A case of boxed milk here, 50 kilos of flour there, and they go at lightning speed. It's like the drop of a hot new sneaker in Soho in New York. Cues form, anticipation builds, and almost everyone goes home empty-handed. I knew I'd have to keep an eye out for several weeks before I'd find the holy trinity of cake, flour, milk, and sugar. On early morning walks with my dog, I'd look for telltale signs of drop, an unusual number of ladies milling around the grocery store entrance, a line forming, people all walking in the same direction towards a shop. Often I'd hop in line and ask, so what are we waiting for? The answers usually varied between who was in front of me and who was behind me. No one really knew, but they were hoping it was just what they needed. It reminded me of stories my Russian friends told me of life in the Soviet Union, when one could stand in line for days on end for a mystery product and end up with either wool boot liners or a few meters of rubber hose, or perhaps tickets to a Stravinsky concert. Twice I was foiled. After a half hour in line, I discovered that they were selling bags of semolina, or in another case, coffee. Both hot commodities, but not what I was looking for. Within a week, I found milk, sold a liter at a time, and only one box per customer. And then, in the depths of my freezer, I found half a kilo of flour, guarded for months from the voracious mouths of weevils. But after two weeks of searching, I was still sugarless. That was, until late one afternoon... I noticed out of my office window a stream of people leaving a nearby shop with plastic produce sacks bulging with what I knew must be the sweet stuff. I bolted down the stairs and across the street, just in time to snatch one of the last scoops full of sugar being meted out from a 50-kilo bag. As the clerk rang me up, I saw a woman pleading with the store worker who was tidying up after the rush to let her sweep up what had fallen on the floor and put it in a sack. A momentary pang of guilt swept through me but I held fast to my bag. That night, I melted some dark chocolate, zested and juiced my blood oranges, 
Mix that sacred milk, flour, and sugar with olive oil and eggs. Stirred it all together and popped it in the oven. Within minutes, my whole house was filled with the rich scent of baking cake, the satisfying fragrance of success amid scarcity. Many thanks to Erin Claire Brown. And that is all the time we have for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Big thanks to my panellists today, Carol Walker and Alessio Patelano. Also to Andrew Muller from the Munich Security Conference. Today's show was produced by Laura Kramer, researched by Neoma Ekwe. Sound engineer was Sarah Nichol, editing assistant Mariella Bevan. I'm Chris Chermak here in London. Goodbye and thanks for listening.